0: monkeypox as a name I mean perhaps it's no stranger than like chickenpox but it is you know when I saw it on TV news that monkeypox was spreading I was like seriously we have monkeypox now?
1: It's an unfortunate name in some regards
0: That's Dr. Cameron Wolf. He's an expert on infectious disease at Duke University. He spoke with us about the latest virus that we've been hearing so much
1: about. Now let's look at questions around monkeypox. Concerns are growing
2: now over the potential spread of monkeypox here in the U.S. Monkeypox.
0: Monkeypox. But as Dr. Wolf points out, the name monkeypox can give a misleading impression of what we're dealing with.
1: You know That can be a difficult association because it's actually rare that it would be transmitted to people from, uh, from apes or monkeys at all. The juxtaposition of, of sick animals with African kids afflicted by some illness is, is a stereotype that really is not helpful and plays into anxiety and plays into stigma and plays into fear and doesn't help us at the end of the day control an infection.
0: In a lot of ways, this name captures so many of the public health challenges in talking about lesser-known viruses like this one. How do you talk about the people who are most affected without stigmatizing them? And how do you make people aware but not too panicked? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, May 24th. Today, what to know about monkeypox. We talked to Dr. Wolf about whether we should be worried and whether two and a half years of one pandemic has left us better prepared for the next one. Plus, later on the show, we take you to New Orleans, where a beloved tradition is returning. Monkeypox infections have been showing up around the world, with confirmed and suspected cases mostly in Europe.
2: We do need to put this into context because it's not COVID. But we're talking about less than about 200 cases of confirmed and suspected cases so far.
0: On Monday, the World Health Organization said that they are raising an alert. But they emphasized that monkeypox is not COVID.
2: Transmission is really happening from close physical contact, skin-to-skin contact. So it's not, it's it's quite different than COVID in that sense.
0: So first off, what is monkeypox?
1: Monkeypox is a virus. It's a virus that is in a family of viruses called orthopoxviruses. And that includes sort of its most famous cousin, I guess, would be smallpox. But there's a number of other ones. And it's a virus that typically, in fact, has its natural home found in many animals. It's classically uh, found in a number of different countries in West and Central Africa and occasionally breaks into human populations if we've, say, had scratches or bites or animal contact and it sort of crosses over that way. It's not normally something that circulates in large numbers in, in human populations, or if it does, it's never actually... Done so with significance in the sort of the northern hemisphere, and if you will, and I think that's where this current issue has sort of caught everyone's attention and been a little bit off guard. So, typically in the past, you'd you'd find it in people who travelled, mm. and that's part of the difference here.
0: And where have cases been identified so far?
1: So it was originally found in the United Kingdom. Early cases had been discovered there whether that was truly chronologically the earliest case, we think it is. Um, But subsequently, there's been a number of other countries who found unidentified cases. So Portugal, Spain, France, Sweden, Switzerland, Austria, Italy. So quite widespread across mainland Europe, but then also as far as Canada, the United States, Israel, as far as Australia actually now. So quite widely disseminated. And it's easy to forget how quickly people as the vectors or the transmitters of infections can travel now globally. And so, the you know, not surprisingly, cases have popped up in, uh, in quite widespread areas.
0: And talk to me about the symptoms. Like if someone contracts monkeypox, what does that start to look like and feel like?
1: Yeah. So classically, there's what we call a prodromal phase to monkeypox, which is when The sort of stereotypical skin lesions are not there, but patients will have fevers, often sort of flu-like symptoms, sometimes some quite prominent lymph node swelling. And that phase can last a good number of days, sort of typically five to seven days sometimes. And people are infectious during that phase, but they won't have the sort of classic, typical signs of the skin lesions. The spots then appear, or the pox lesions as we would call them, and they kind of go through... Uh, really a series of evolutionary changes, I guess, as they develop. The first sort of being a, a flat space on the skin that's red that then raises up and becomes eventually into a into a, a vesicle or a fluid-filled blister. They then become pustulous, like a boil almost. And then eventually that clears away and, and scabs and leaves a small scar. And so during those four phases... Depending on, uh, you know, as you can imagine, that they're, they're depending on how widespread across the skin those lesions are. That can, um, you know, either be quite limited to small areas of the skin where the virus may have got in, or in some cases, it can be much more widespread.
0: And can monkeypox be deadly?
1: Look, it can, and I, I have some pauses to that because it's certainly not common. Hmm. There are two subtypes. There's a sort of a West African and a more Central African clade, if you will. And this is felt to be the less severe of the two from what we know so far. But certainly if you put monkeypox into a person who's more at risk, let's say someone who's immune suppressed or someone who's an older adult, in the same way that chickenpox in an adult can be much more severe if you're an older or at-risk adult, so can this. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to also clarify even at this stage there's a lot here that we don't know monkeypox typically is transmitted like we said earlier mainly in individuals who've traveled through africa or it's often involved in animal contact whereas what we see here is has been different it's in communities that have spread it through social networks and through intimate close contact whether that proves to have exactly the same clinical outcomes as sort of more traditionally acquired mm. uh, monkeypox, I think we need to figure that out still. In reality, the mortality historically has been sort of considerably less than 10%. Um, but that's still a number that if you you know multiply that over hundreds of cases can be meaningful. Whether we ended up seeing that in this sort of outbreak or not, I, I don't know. That needs to be watched pretty carefully.
0: I think many of us who are seeing this news about monkeypox are getting uh, pretty strong, like, end of 2019 vibes of seeing the news about this thing spreading. Will it or will it not eventually affect me? I will acknowledge my own bias and say that I remember when COVID started to be a thing. I was like, there's no way that this is going to become like a global pandemic. Everyone's just panicking over something that's going to end up being pretty small. Clearly, I was wrong. So with my biases in mind, like, do you think that this is something that we need to be worried about now, that this could be the next big pandemic?
1: Well, I'll, I'll start by conceding my biases are the same as yours when it came to COVID. <laughs> I mean, I, I distinctly remember that in late 2019, reading some early articles about, you know, a virus that I didn't hitherto understand in Wuhan and mm-hmm. and not anticipating it would get so significant. You know, I think there's differences here that give me some reassurance to start with. You know, the first is that this is not typically as readily transmitted through respiratory secretions. Hmm. So when we think of flu or we think of COVID, really the challenge in stopping its transmission is that it's much more readily passed between individuals by, uh, you know, by breathing, by our coughing, by our sneezing, by by respiratory droplets. And so... You can be in the same room as someone, and in fact, in COVID quite transiently, and they can be contagious to you. Here, I think, whilst it's felt that monkeypox can be transmitted by respiratory droplets, it needs to be much more close, uh, intimate contact, we believe, for that to be um, able to pass to other people. So I think that is going to make it much harder and slower to transmit amongst large groups of people. That said, you know, I think the one thing, again, that we don't yet know is that so far this has transmitted through sexual networks. And, you know, the the intimacy that can occur amongst partners or amongst close contacts or even household contacts is, is something that could allow this to transmit. And quite how how much that does so, I, I think we we don't know yet. But I, I don't have nearly the same anxiety as, I think, sort of early 2020 when we started to see COVID really take off.
0: I wonder if there's also a risk here, especially considering the fact that it seems like how this virus is being transmitted now in some ways is through sexual transmission. If there's a, I don't know, like a, a sense of people writing this off as, oh, this is just a thing that certain people are at risk for. I mean, in some ways, this reminds me of like the early days of HIV, right? That this was just a thing that's being transmitted between men who have sex with men and therefore isn't a thing that the rest of the population needs to be worried about. Do you feel like that's a fair comparison?
1: I do think the mistake would be to assume that this can only transmit amongst certain groups of people. It's true that so far it's important to acknowledge uh, sort of epidemiologically, that this has mainly transmitted, but not exclusively amongst men who have male sexual partners. And that's important for clinicians to understand because that helps anyone who's seeing a patient present with symptoms that they may not have an alternative answer for to think about, you know, what's the likelihood that this individual in front of me could have monkeypox? You need to factor that into account. Hmm. But I think the error, both clinically from a physician point of view, but also from the general public's point of view, is to assume that there's anything about the virus that means it can't move through any population. In fact, traditionally, it does move through general populations with equal ease. So, to your point, I think it's it's accurate to say it would be wrong of us to be blasé about risk, um, no matter who you are and no matter where you live.
0: And what are treatments for this
1: yeah that's a great question because we don't have many to be frank so hmm. the, the well, that's not good <laughs> it's not good but let's remember the overwhelming number of people do fine and so this for the vast majority of people is a self-limited transient illness that your own body's immune system learns how to handle and fight and clear it's not fast. So, you know, this in total from the prodrome through to the end of the rash can take two to three weeks. So, it's an illness that's not quick. It takes your body's immune system time to learn. But the vast majority of people will clear this naturally. There have been a couple of medications as well as a couple of vaccine candidates now that were principally developed, in fact, towards handling smallpox. Mm. So, if you remember again that smallpox and Monkeypox are closely related viruses. Oh, interesting. uh, In in the way that they present and their genetics, those drugs, uh, we think, will have activity here.
0: That's encouraging.
1: Which is great, exactly. Uh, But to be fair, they're also very early in their development. They've not had large scale studies. um, You know, reassuringly, we haven't had large scale outbreaks of monkeypox before uh, to fully understand how those drugs work. So there are certainly. Candidates that we hope will be helpful for people who get the most severe end of the spectrum, but the overwhelming number of people neither will need a hospital nor will need extra treatment because they'll get better by themselves.
0: But are you confident that the public health infrastructure exists, particularly here in the U.S., but even internationally, to prevent this from becoming a bigger thing? I mean, obviously having a vaccine for this would be great. But then there's the question of, will people take the vaccine if they need to, or if they if the option is given to them? And it seems like a lot of the other parts of our public health system that theoretically are supposed to prevent or contain pandemics isn't functioning the way it should be.
1: I wouldn't say we're perfect in the United States at all, but we've had lots of fresh experience to know where our weak spots are. And you know, previously, one of our major weak spots was the infrastructural strength of public health, if you will, and the trust in public health. That got a bit shaken over the last two years, to be honest. So that's issue number one. I hope we've learned some good lessons in the last two years. Issue number two is that we do have experience in terms of understanding how to prevent illnesses that have transmitted through sexual partners and contact. And, you know, that, that experience moves through many STD clinics, through many infectious disease groups, through a wealth of networks of clinicians who will learn quickly how to look out for this and how to try and stop it on its tracks. Mm. You know, the, the other challenge, of course, is that for many people who have mild monkeypox illness, they may not recognize their own symptoms. Again, we saw that with COVID, didn't we, that a lot of people had mild enough symptoms that they thought they had allergies or they thought they had the flu. And so they went about their business and didn't didn't sort of self-isolate themselves. I think that potential exists here quite significantly. And so one of the things that's going to be really important as we figure out more details about what's going on here is to educate the community to say, look, here are the kind of symptoms for which you should self-isolate, for which you should seek care, And help us mitigate this and close off further transmission. Yeah.
0: But again, and I want to push you on this a little bit. I mean, thinking about the lessons learned from COVID or the ways that we have understood better how to navigate pandemics or potential pandemics like this. I mean, in some ways, I do worry that we haven't really learned that many of those lessons, either when it comes to the government's ability to properly educate the public about risks or what they should be looking out for or investing in public health. I mean, we have pandemic preparedness funding in Congress that is currently not being passed because there is a sense that we're over the pandemic. And so we don't we don't have to worry about being prepared for pandemics anymore. And so when you look at the net gains and and costs of the last two and a half years and, you know, what has improved and what hasn't improved and how we respond to public health crises like these. I don't know how encouraging of a look it is.
1: No, I push back on a couple of things there, I guess. You know, number one, we have had really a strengthening of some of our research networks that tie together major clinics, academic centers, NIH, and sort of international research groups to figure out solutions much, much more efficiently than we ever had in the past. COVID solidified that in many ways. It it was much more fragmented if you had looked at that five years ago. You know, public health is always the underfunded stepchild. I think there's no way around that, be that at the WHO level, be that at sort of CDC or local county health department level. But again, I think what we learned from COVID was we now have a lot of wealth of experience of where the gaps are. And I think the gaps that need to be filled are very quick assessments of education capacity, quick assessments of who's at risk and getting targeted messages to those individuals. And we're again, we're better at that than we were two or three years ago. Again, I think the sort of the infrastructure in place is actually more, more solidified than it would have been if this had have erupted two or three years back.
0: Dr. Wolf, I find your encouragement very effective. I feel encouraged too. So thank you.
1: Well, I, I mean, I think it's true. I, don't get me wrong. This is, this is new. This is transmitting in ways that we have not fully understood yet. I'm not going to sit here and say that we understand all that's going on by any means. And there will no doubt be more cases and more cases that we don't find. So it's going to be a challenge. I, I think that's a distinct reality here. And yet already the scientific community coming together to try and cement uh, some basic treatments and basic plans about how to educate the public on this is, is moving quicker than it might have done in past years. That's a good thing.
0: I do want to ask a larger question, though. I think something that I've been struggling with, I think the folks who work on Post Reports have been struggling with in terms of how to frame this, how much attention to give it, whether having a whole show about monkeypox is going to kind of fuel more panic that is unnecessary versus whether it's it would be minimizing what is a, a real threat to not give it a lot of attention and focus. So, like, how do you think about that, this t- towing this line between doing a public service and warning people about monkeypox, but not causing unnecessary alarm?
1: Yeah, that's, boy, that's a good question. And we think about that all the time, even on the hospital sort of side of things, how much How much at this point do I alert clinicians within my healthcare system for something that still most of them will probably never see? I think some attention is important because I think there is a a real need, and the media plays a part in this, of informing the general community about accurate scientific fact about conditions that they may face. You know, the other thing that we need to be, I think, just particularly sensitive of is when you Google... Pictures of monkeypox. What do you get? You get pictures of sort of st- grossly stereotyped, often African children with lots of pox lesions mm. on them, and and yet that's not what we're seeing here. We're seeing Caucasian skin or dark skin or any any type of blended of male or female skin that that is not represented by those pictures. And again, the sort of the juxtaposition of sick animals with African kids afflicted by some illness is is a stereotype that really is not helpful and plays into anxiety and plays into stigma and plays into fear and doesn't help us at the end of the day control an infection.
0: I'm glad you mentioned those images because I feel like I've seen the same images and been wondering the same thing of like, is this the right way to be framing this illness and how much of what we're seeing is based in stereotypes?
1: I'll catch you on that point. So there's actually now, I think, a real need for medical sharing of you know what this lesion looks like in Caucasian skin,
0: which could help people just be able to identify it, right, for a clinical purpose of helping people understand what to look for.
1: Exactly, will help me understand the full breadth of what the illness can look like in in people who have not necessarily acquired this in the sort of stereotypical textbook ways, and will help patients identify when they're at risk. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a big sort of unmet need, I think, at this point, and so. Highlighting it in that context, understanding the ways that it's transmitted and describing that, understanding what it can look like and, and risks and describing that to the public, describing the fact that it for the overwhelming majority of Americans, this is going to be a very, very low risk situation for them. It's not like the transmissibility of COVID like we described earlier. That's important, but not talking about it does a disservice also because invariably there will be people who come into contact with this who if they don't know what to look out for, if they don't know what symptoms they may have, perhaps that person does not then take steps that they would do otherwise to keep themselves out of other people's harm's way. and we get ongoing transmission cycles. So it's clearly striking a balance. No one wants unnecessary hysteria because the response to that is either anxiety on the one end or simply... The boy who cried wolf on the other end, a disbelief in sort of what the media is presenting if we go too far. But I do think there's a middle ground which we all try and strike, which is appropriate awareness. We should stick ourselves a calendar date for 12 months down the road to see if we come back and find that this is uh, endemic or how well we handled it.
0: Dr. Wolf, thank you so much.
1: Hey, know, I appreciate the interview.
0: Dr. Cameron Wolfe is an infectious disease expert at Duke University. On Tuesday, the CDC announced that the U.S. will be releasing vaccines from its stockpile to combat the virus. This story was produced by Julie Deppenbrock. Next, we're bringing you to New Orleans, where a tradition has come roaring back. More after the break. After more than two years of pandemic restrictions and canceled events, parading and festival life in New Orleans has started to get back to normal. Earlier this year, the city celebrated a full-blown Mardi Gras for the first time since 2020. Earlier this month, Jazz Fest happened for the first time in three years. It's safe to say that New Orleans' festival scene is back in a major way. And so are the Mardi Gras Indians.
2: It felt, you know, supernatural, like when you wear the suit. But it felt a little bit more, cause when we sew these all year to make a mardi gras, when you wear it, it's you top of the world. You, to me, I'm the president of the United States. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs>
0: The Mardi Gras Indians are also known as the Black Masking Indians, and they are a staple of the New Orleans carnival and festival scenes. They parade and perform in these beautiful, intricate costumes. National correspondent Holly Bailey was in New Orleans to see how this tradition has returned in force and how it's evolved to reflect so much of the tragedy that has happened to New Orleans and the country over the past few years.
2: They call themselves Mardi Gras Indians. There's about three dozen tribes, as they describe themselves, from various neighborhoods, mostly black men. This dates back to when much of the city's New Orleans carnival celebrations were segregated. A lot of times parades years ago were whites only. And so in these neighborhoods throughout the city, outside of the center of the city, People began their own traditions, having neighborhood tribes where they would come out in these elaborate, beaded, feathered costumes that pay homage to the Native Americans that helped blacks escape slavery. Basically, there's a chief of this tribe, and they put on these—they're not even costumes, people refer to them as suits— And they all play different roles. But now it's almost a a contest for who, the way they put it, it's the contest of who's the prettiest. Mardi Gras is the day that they first debut their first new suit of the year. And they're also a very integral part of the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival that happens every late April and early May. And it's a huge scene. They parade through Jazz Fest. Hundreds of people surround them, and they swoop and soar in these beautiful suits. My colleague and I, Joshua Lott, photographed them at their homes. Many of them were already at work on their suits for next year because they're so labor-intensive. It does take almost a year to create the suit for the following year.
3: I'll be starting on my next suit next month. Okay. Yeah, because I have to have time to see how I'm going to do it see what it's gonna look like. Sometimes
2: I sketch it Uh and I redo it and yeah. Tiara Horton, who is one of the Indian Queens that we interviewed, told me that she puts in orders for feathers from Africa, that in the supply chain madness of COVID has been taking a little bit longer to arrive. (laughs) Yeah, it was delayed. Yeah, it
3: was delayed, it was delayed maybe like a month or two. What kind of feathers is that? Astroids. We get them from Africa. Oh, wow.
2: But it takes enormous amounts of money. And Tiara created this beautiful suit that was called Black Lives Matter.
3: So right here you have the word racism spelled out. And it's um, actually in red, white, and blue simply because, hey, this is America. You know, racism is is crazy over here. And on the beading was
2: pictures of people you know, that she found important. And she described it as being her way of protesting.
3: And then, um, you know, the hands up, don't shoot, just protesting. Hey, this is still going on. Racism is still alive Mm -hmm. and well. Um, And then, you know, Black Lives Matter. We have Mm -hmm. Sandra Bannon, Trayvon Morton, you know, just to pay homage.
2: The suits are extremely heavy. When we were at Jazz Fest following one of the tribes. It was about 100 degrees, and these suits weigh about at least 100 pounds, sometimes more.
3: Once you keep, like, if you keep moving, you won't feel the weight, or once they stop and we stop, you feel the (laughs) weight. You feel the weight.
2: I gotta do stuff that means something, and I'm, you know, I'm a contemporary beat artist, so I try to get my stuff. To go places that the elders worked in, go. Mm-hmm. So. One of the other people that we talked to was Damon melancon who is getting notice for his suits because of how intricately beaded they are. They've been shown in London. They've attracted attention, wide attention from the fine art world. I had another back apron to wear on the back, mm-hmm. so it's big like this. But I took it off and put it in an auction with Sotheby's. Mm-hmm. At, uh, with Man, Burning auction, and it sold for a hundred thousand dollars. wow But he wants to see this culture keep going, and he's really emphasizing how you know this is something that is important for younger people to keep going, and also also a part of the fabric of the city. There's some fear now because the city is is becoming hugely gentrified. Some of the neighborhoods where people used to live are now just dominated by Airbnbs. We talked to one man named Victor Harris, who's been, he's credited as the longest masking Indian in New Orleans because he's been creating a suit for close to 57 years.
3: You know, cause I, I don't know how much longer I can last on my feet, you know, so mm-hmm. so I have to settle down and settle in and be able to say, well, I could still help out by doing other things like teaching, mm-hmm. you know, yeah.
2: He has many of his suits from the past. He tries to teach people, young people, how to sew. I mean, they really credit this as something that is not just a part of, you know, keeping this tradition going of beautiful suits and, you know, the joy of marching in the on Mardi Gras day. It's part of his goal to, is to teach younger generations to sort of cherish this and keep it going.
3: You're not going to see this work anywhere else. You're going to see some other beautiful things, but I promise you, you won't see this nowhere else. Not this, not what you're looking at here. I promise you that.
0: Holly Bailey is a national correspondent for The Post. This story was produced by Charlotte Freeland. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show is mixed by Ted Muldoon and edited by Rena Flores. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.